At last, the chickens of the kingdom of Israel have come home to roost. In this lesson, they're carried away captive by Assyrians. However, the southern kingdom of Judah avoids a similar fate. How did they do it? We'll discuss that and more in this week's lesson number 30, Come to the House of the Lord. I'm Mark Holt, and this is Gospel Doctrine. Welcome back to Gospel Doctrine, and we welcome those who are listening to us for the first time. We know there are more of you every week, and we appreciate you. If you're enjoying the show, please give us a five-star review, either on Facebook or iTunes or SoundCloud, wherever you are receiving our podcast. Those reviews help us to reach more people and spread the word, and please feel free to share any of the social media posts about our podcast. We uh, we depend on entirely upon that. We don't have any sort of advertising or promotion budget, and so we depend entirely on word of mouth and um, and your sharing in order to spread the word and, and reach more people every week, and it does seem to be working. Um, also, we'd encourage anyone who would like to have a question or concern or uh, comment answered on the air, please email the show, gt at gospeltoctrin.com, and uh, I will respond to that as soon as I receive it. Well, this week's lesson is fascinating, and we'll begin a little bit before. So the, the chapters that we're covering uh, are mostly in Second Chronicles. The end of Second Chronicles, chapters 29 through 34, but we also do a little bit in the book of Second Kings and some of Isaiah as well. This lesson covered the lifetime of Isaiah, and uh, unlike... Unlike the Book of Mormon, the Bible is not arranged chronologically. And so by just reading the Bible, you don't always know exactly where events are occurring. Um, and the the Bible, in fact, um, is arranged differently depending on, on what religion you are. The Catholic Bible and the Jewish Bible and the Protestant Bible, which is one of which is the King James Version, all have different orderings of the books of the Old Testament, but none of them are chronological. And in fact, it would be very, very difficult because some of the books span several generations and some of them concern the teachings of a single prophet. But in any case, uh, during this during this week's lesson is the lifespan of Isaiah, and, and he's actually one of the, he figures into the story. But before this story, before the lesson that is covered in the lesson manual begins, uh, Let's talk a little bit about what happens. This lesson is mostly concerned with the southern kingdom of Judah. We're going to talk about the northern kingdom of Israel for a moment. And at the same time, we're going to talk about the empire of Assyria. Now, the first thing you need to know about Assyrians is they have awesome names for their emperors. This is just really important. Names like Tiglath-Pileser and Shalmaneser and Sennacherib, and uh, I just thought you all, and Asher Nazar Paul, I thought you all should know that. They're really good at naming their emperors, awesome names. Don't ever name your children after them, though. And here's why. Uh, the Assyrians, so uh, we, in, there are many prophecies in the, in the scriptures about how the Jews will become a hiss and a byword. In other words, that people, even hearing about the Jews or hearing about the way they were treated, um, it's, it's described in different ways. In, in one passage, the Lord says, You're, whoever hears about what happened to you, their ears will tingle. In other words, uh, the, the Jews were not going to be treated well be, as a result of their disobedience. And when we hear that, we think, oh yeah, we know about the Holocaust. And we know what happened to Jewish people under Nazi rule. And that is true that what happened to the Jews during the Holocaust during World War II in the Nazi regime was incredibly awful. But not a lot of people know that the Jews had an even worse enemy in the Old Testament. And the, the only thing that was worth, worse about the Nazis is that they targeted Jews specifically for genocide. 
to the exclusion of other groups. However, uh, aside from that, everything the Assyrians did was worse, and not just a little bit worse, but much, much worse. But the, the difference is that the Assyrians treated all their enemies the same way, which is just absolutely terrible. And I'm going to spend a little time talking about how, how awful they were. And I have a reason behind this. It's because when we talk about Jonah, you'll have a little better understanding as to why Jonah was so reluctant. And I'll cover this probably again. I'll, I'll, I'll do a little more abbreviated this time than I will when we talk about Jonah. But I'll cover their abominations again. Um, and you'll understand why he was so reluctant to go preach to them. Uh, and that's just a, that's going to be a fascinating lesson. Really looking forward to, to that one. So what did the Assyrians do? Why were they so, what, what is the big deal about Assyria? First of all, um, Babylon, the, the name Babylon is, usually given in the Bible, or in especially in the New Testament, but later on in the, in the Old Testament as well, as a symbol for everything worldly. But the Babylonian Empire wasn't even as big as the Assyrian Empire. The Egyptian Empire was never as big as the Assyrian Empire. They were the, the, the Roman Empire of the ancient world. They conquered everything they set their mind to. And they did it by absolute brutality. They ruled by fear. And we'll see a little, we'll see a few examples of how they tried to do this with Judah in, in this week's lesson. But they were, they were vicious and they murdered, they, sorry, they worshiped murderous gods. And we'll talk about why that is spiritually significant in the history of Israel as well. What did they do? What did the Assyrians do to people that they conquered? First of all, we know that Israel, when it was conquered, was never heard from again. And the, tri- the tribes, we call them the lost 10 tribes for a reason. They were transplanted. So Assyria didn't just come in and impose heavy taxes and perhaps kill all the men who were capable of being part of an army and then let the people go about their lives. They came in, and if you had upset them enough and made it difficult enough for them to conquer you, then they lifted your population out of its land wholesale and took it somewhere else and brought other people in. And that's what they did to the northern state of Israel. So during the reign of the king Hoshea, the, which is, who is a contemporary of the southern king Hezekiah, whom we'll talk about, during, that, during his reign, Hoshea's reign, uh, the Assyrians came in, laid siege to Samaria, which was their capital, and besieged them for three years. And we don't have any accounts of this because nobody got out. They were surrounded for three years, and then they were conquered and carried away. They were killed. And when the Assyrians ki- conquered you, they they it, they considered it a value. They considered... Um, men who were accomplished at torture to be worthy of admiration. They considered it a value that a, a father would teach his son to torture captives. And soldiers were given their portion of the, the loot in a, in a conquered city based on how many prisoners they put to death. You can imagine a society built around a set of values like that, perhaps. If you were a noble, so the king, King Hoshea and his family and anyone, anyone who's high up in Israel, Israelite society would have had, and you, and you may recall the, the phrase, to the pain from The Princess Bride, where the main character, Wesley, gets his enemy to, to give up by, and this is a spoiler alert, but I imagine you've all seen it, uh, gets his enemy to give up by threatening, um, no, we're not fighting to the death. We're fighting to the pain, which is I'm going to cut your hands and feet off and I'm going to cut your nose off and I'm going to cut your tongue out and poke your eyes out. And then he said, oh yeah, and I'm sure you're going to cut my ears off. And he said, no, I'm going to leave you with your ears so that every, so you can hear how terrible everyone rea- everyone's reactions to you, your ugliness are. Well, 
the Assyrians did to the pain, except they actually did cut off the ears. You, as you, as you watch that movie, you think nobody ever really did that. This was a common thing. The Assyrians would cut off everything and, and leave you alive, or they would roast you over a slow fire, or they would uh, throw you off a tall tower. And it was very common that they would try to remove your skin while you were still alive, which is widely considered to be the most painful experience possible. So this is the kind of terrible, terrible empire the Assyrians are, just evil. And they believed that they were pleasing God by causing pain among their enemies. The worst, and in other words, they worshipped gods that were very close to being Satan. There was very little difference between what they worshipped and just actually just worshipping the devil. And we'll have a side note about that uh, in just a bit. But that is what happened to the nation of Israel, the northern kingdom, carried away by, by Assyria. And they were treated so horribly and they were so efficiently swept away that nobody ever heard from them again. We don't have any records of where they went. There aren't even, there are a few Talmudic and Midrash traditions that, that mention that one group made it, made it away as a, as a group, managed to maintain their religious integrity and, and escape, but it's just a legend. There's nothing further known about them, and um, in fact, I believe that we as Latter-day Saints, I could be wrong, but to my knowledge, there's no other major religious group that believes that there is a body of the, the what are called the Lost Ten Tribes that retained their integrity as a group and remained together. And we do actually believe that at, at some point, a group that has maintained its identity as the remnant of the Northern Kingdom of Israel will appear and will bring their scriptures. And the reason we know they've maintained their integrity is you you don't you don't keep scriptures and write scriptures and have prophets testifying to just your people unless your people are a cohesive unit unless they have some sort of national identity and therefore if they were part of any of the societies or civilizations of the world as we know it now we would have already received these scriptures but it is a prophecy a latter day prophecy that at some point they will bring their scriptures to the prophet of the church. And that will be a joyous day of, of reuniting the, the tribe of Ephraim, which is widely considered to be most of the members of the church today. Although there, there are members of the church from every tribe all the time being baptized. Um, and the, and the last 10 tribes, the tribe of uh, Manasseh and, Dan and Zebulun, all the northern tribes. So the the gathering of Israel, just to talk a little a little more about it, but briefly, is considered to have at least two fulfillments. And one is the what I mentioned earlier that there are people being constantly baptized, and and not only that, but the um, the tribe of Judah that have kept their identity as Jews are being gathered to the land of Israel, the physical land of Israel. And then people are being identified all the time in their patriarchal blessings as being of tribes that are part of this lost group that was carried away to Assyria. And yet there is still a group, and it's, it's difficult to imagine where they might be, um, just about the only place they could be that would make any sense would be somewhere underground, but that's, that's a speculation for another day. Anyway, the, the prophecy is that at, at some point you and I will have access to the scriptures and know what, what befell them. But they were so efficiently destroyed. The nation of Israel was so efficiently destroyed that we ne- they were never heard from again. And as we'll talk about in the next few weeks, Judah was carried away captive too uh, later on. Not, not in our lesson we'll cover today, but they we have records of what happened to them. They were carried away, luckily for them, they were carried away captive by an entirely different empire. By that time, the Assyrian sun had set and the Babylonians had 
gained primacy over Assyria, and therefore they were the ones to conquer Judah, luckily for Judah and for all of us as well. If you turn, this this isn't really part of the lesson, but if you turn to uh, Kings, 2 Kings chapter 18, uh, there's a there's a passage here that's really interesting because it's normally we don't get any sort of commentary in the Bible in the in the Book of Mormon we're used to it because Mormon is constantly inserting himself and saying okay uh, dear reader here I am the the writer of this story or the compiler of this story here's what's going on here's when all this is happening. Here's why I'm compiling this story. And in the Bible, we have to infer a lot of those things. It's, it's never explicitly stated. And yet, um, chapter 18 of, of 2 Kings is one of those rare moments. It's almost like a, and thus we see, moment that you would get in the Book of Mormon. I'm sorry, it's uh, chapter 17 of 2 Kings. So here it is in... Uh, in 2 Kings chapter 17, verse 6, in the ninth year of Hosea, the king of Assyria, in Hosea, the king of Assyria, took Samaria and carried Israel away into Assyria and placed them in Hala and Habor by the river of Gozan in the, in the city of the Medes. For so it was that the children of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God, which had brought them up out of the land of Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and had feared other gods and walked in the statutes of the heathen, whom the Lord cast out from before the children of Israel and of the kings of Israel, which they had made. And the children of Israel did secretly those things that were not right against the Lord their God, and they built them high places in all their cities, from the tower of the watchmen to the fenced city. And that, that's just a saying that means from the, from the vineyard, where they would have a, tow, a watchman with a tower, to a fenced city. So all the way from the countryside to the city. Everybody in Israel was, was engaging in idolatry. And they set them up images and groves in every high hill and under every green tree. This is a reference to different kinds of idolatrous worship. And there they burnt incense in all the high places, as did the heathen whom the Lord carried away before them, and wrought wicked things to provoke the Lord to anger. For they served idols, whereof the Lord said unto them, Ye shall not do this thing. Yet the Lord testified against Israel and against Judah by all the prophets and by all the seers, saying, Turn ye from your evil ways and keep my commandments and my statutes according to all the law which I commanded your fathers and which I sent to you by my servants the prophets. Notwithstanding, they would not hear but hardened their necks like to the neck of their fathers that did not believe in the, the Lord their God. And they rejected his statutes and his covenant that he made with their fathers and his testimonies, which he testified against them. And they followed vanity and became vain and went after the heathen that were round about them, concerning whom the Lord had charged them that they should not do like them. And they left all the commandments of the Lord their God. Now we're in verse 16. And made them molten images, even two calves, and made a grove and worshiped all the host of heaven and served Baal. And they caused their sons and daughters to pass through the fire. We talked about that. That's serving Moloch or Molech, the... Amorite God, and they were engaging in human sacrifice of their own children. They caused their sons and daughters to pass through the fire and use divination and enchantments and sold themselves to do evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. Therefore, the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them out of his sight. There was none left but the tribe of Judah only. Now, this chapter is not part of our lesson, is not part of what's covered in the manual this week, but it's it's so important to read this and realize so often, uh, and here's my point in reading all this, so often we think the God of the Old Testament is a God of swift justice and difficult commandments and strict obedience. And here in this chapter, you see just how long-suffering he was, all the terrible things the nation of Israel did, and all the many times he forgave them. That's an idea we'll return to again and again um, in this lesson. Now, in the northern kingdom of Israel, they had not a single king Every time a new king would come, uh, come along, the the description is, and then he followed the sin of Jeroboam, by which he caused the nation of Israel to sin. They had not a single king that would remove the practice of idolatry. In all of their two hundred year history, there wasn't a single one. And what Jeroboam did was he instituted these calves that represented. They did represent the God of Israel, but. They had to have some idol to worship rather than the 
the temple that was prescribed. And we can guess that that, that worship, as it did in the time of Sinai, that the worship of that idol also led to other uh, abominable practices before God. And at times, there was actual idolatry of, of other heathen gods in the northern kingdom of Israel. Uh, and at times, they were still worshiping Yahweh, but they, they were worshiping him in, a, in an apostate way. But they never got rid of this, what was called the sin of Jeroboam, which was this idol worship. Now, um, this commentary tells you the, the whole purpose of the book of Kings. It was to show, and um, I've let the cat out of the bag a little bit, but you all know the story, hopefully. It was to show that the captivity of Israel and Judah was inevitable. It was to show not the fact that God was so strict, but God was so merciful. It was to show that God was forgiving and long-suffering and patient, and, he, and, and how, just how many warnings he'd sent and given to those two nations in order to get them to change. Well, did they ever change? Yes, in, in the southern kingdom of Judah, perhaps because they had the temple within their borders, there were, depending on what account you read or what interpretation, there were either four or eight righteous kings. There were, there were eight kings who were personally righteous, and four of those that actually induced the people as well to repent. So, And by personally righteous, I mean they didn't, at least they weren't idolaters. They may have had other problems, but they, they didn't encourage the practice of idolatry officially. And then there were four who actually tried to stamp it out. And we talked about two of them before. They were kind of early on. And then right around the time when Israel is wiped off the map, about seven years later, well, at the same time, Hezekiah was king in, in, in Judah. And seven years later, Assyria comes to take Judah as well. So they... They conquer a number of the walled cities, several of the walled cities of Judah, and carry away over 100,000 people into captivity of the tribe of Judah. So when we talk about the last 10 tribes, there were actually members of all 12 of these tribes that were carried away. It's just that there was there were very few remnants of any of the other tribes. Judah were the main occupants of the nation of Judah, but there were Levites there, there were Ephraimites, and there was half of the tribe of Benjamin. So it's not quite as simple as 10 of the tribes were carried away, two were left. But for the most part, this is Judah and Benjamin that's left with some Levites. And Hezekiah is surrounded. He, the, one of the main cities that led to Egypt, and Egypt was their ally against Assyria. This is why they had the confidence to stand up to Assyria, was they thought, oh, well, Egypt can help us against Assyria. And... At this time, Sennacherib, the, the Assyrian emperor, is encamped against the town of Lachish, which is on the road to them receiving any sort of reinforcements from Egypt. And this is when the Assyrian emperor starts saying to, this is the whole point of their, their campaign of fear, is so that they can send letters like this and have them work. And he starts sending letters to Jerusalem saying, are you going to, are you going to defy me? Because you know what happens when I come in to conquer. I destroy people and I torture them and I kill them. And a lot of times with the Assyrians, this kind of letter, this kind of message, this kind of mockery would work. Because he, And he mocks Yahweh. He says, Is your God different than all the other gods that have protected all the other countries that I have trod under my foot? I have destroyed them. I, you know, I've in other words, I am above every god of the world. This is what the Assyrian emperor is saying in his letter to Hezekiah. And it's actually a very scary letter to Hezekiah. Everyone who reads it is struck, is struck with fear. And Hezekiah trusts in God, and he's a righteous king. He is faithful, and he has a, he has a testimony or maybe perhaps a spiritual witness that God is going to protect them, and nevertheless, he is just... He is just shaking in his boots because of how terrible Assyria is and what he knows they w can do and what they are willing to do and what they want to do. And 
the at first he he well he has faith right away from the beginning and he he says to everyone and this is an obvious quote of something we covered in last week's lesson he says those that those that are with us there or there be more with us than with him and the way that elisha phrased it against the same enemy by the way the assyrians were tired of elisha giving away all their through prophetic powers, giving away all their ambushes, and they sent an army to surround him. And Elisha had one assistant with them, and he said, they that be with us are more than they that be with them. Well, it seems to me, and this is unknown to us at this late stage, centuries later, millennia later, but it seems to me this is an obvious quote of Elisha's words. And uh, the the book of Kings had yet to be written, obviously, because we're still live. We're still uh, Hezekiah is still living the book of the events in the book of Kings, and so there must have been some way where the the exploits of the prophets are written down and distributed among the people. The, to me, that seems like a very obvious conclusion, because not only and here and here's why I make that conclusion. Number one. Not only did Hezekiah use the words that Elisha had used to describe the Assyrians and the angels that would fight on his side, but the people responded to that saying. So he said, there be more with us than be with him. And then they trusted that. So they thought, oh, to them that summoned up a, a vision of Elisha surrounded by horses and chariots of fire. And so this young man who was with Elisha must have told this story and, and, and had to have become a legend. And the reason I bring that up is uh, there are scriptures that we have no idea about. There, this, is, this would have been the equivalent of sort of a general conference report that would have told the story of the miracles of Elisha to anyone in the southern kingdom because Elisha was a a prophet in the northern kingdom, it would have told the stories of Elisha to anyone in the summer, southern kingdom who, who wanted to learn what Yahweh's prophets were doing in the northern kingdom. And these would have been written down and copied, and they would have also been passed through an oral tradition, which meant that in each town nearby where it happened, there would be someone who was designated to tell the story, who was entrusted with the details of the story, and anytime anyone wanted to hear it, they would ask the the servant of the story, and that person would recount it. So the fact that this story was so widely known by this time meant that, and this is you know a generation or two after Elisha, meant that um, these people cared about what was happening in the northern kingdom among the prophets of Yahweh. So here's Hezekiah quoting one of the prophets saying, "There be more with us than be with him." And the, the, he'd had some warning. Now, let's talk about some of the preparations that Hezekiah had made for this day. How did he know that there, there was more with him than were with Sennacherib? How did he know that the king of Assyria, in spite of all of his might, was going to be uh, opposed by Yahweh? There have been times in the past when Israel and Judah had lost in battle, and the Lord didn't. In other words, the Lord doesn't always fight their battles. How did he have such confidence? Well, Hezekiah, right, right as soon as he takes the throne, he cleans, he cleanses the temple, and he says to his priests and his Levites, cleanse yourselves. So the, the title of this lesson is, Come to the House of the Lord. And Hezekiah says to his priests and Levites, first of all, there's something called ritual purity or ritual cleanliness that the Israelites believed in. It's in the law of Moses. And it wasn't necessarily physical cleanliness, although there were uh, o- there was some overlap. But it meant that you didn't engage in certain activities for a certain amount of time in order to be ritually pure. One of those things was touch a dead body. Um, there were prescriptions on how often you could cut your hair, how you had to dress, how you had to act, prayers that had to be said, and before you could, if you were a priest or a Levite, before you could engage in the sacrificial duties on the Temple Mount with the altar, you had to be ritually cleansed. So, the first thing that Hezekiah did was he said, 
we need to cleanse the temple, and then we need to cleanse ourselves. And he declared a festival. It was almost like uh, a new festival, because when they were finished, they weren't quite done in time for Passover. They missed Passover. But it took them a long time to cleanse the temple, and when they were done, they came to him and said, we've done all, all that you've commanded. And they took these... The, the temple had been totally neglected, luckily, because uh, we'll learn in just a bit what happens when it's not neglected by an idolatrous king. But um, So at least it hadn't been mistreated, but it had been totally neglected. And they restored it, and it was quite a project. And when they were done, then they took seven days to, to dedicate it or to hallow it, almost the same. And if you remember, seven days was how long... Solomon took to dedicate the temple, and this was actually a um, a common Near Eastern, ancient Near Eastern practice, which was that a new king would take seven days to inhabit his palace and to declare his reign and, and his his coronation was a seven day process, and so they're they're following this tradition and they're uh, they're rededicating, as it were, the temple. Then. Hezekiah calls. He sends out what's called a post. He, and you can imagine town criers going to every village. He sends to all the survivors of the destruction of the Assyrians in the northern kingdom. And he sends to all of his subjects in Judah. And he says, we have neglected the festivals of God and we missed Passover by a month. And so we're going to do it anyway. We're going to have a late Passover, and we're all going to observe the feast of the leavened bread, unleavened bread. And so everyone come to Jerusalem. And there were people who mocked at this, but there were also people who came out of every village. As far as this post reached, there were people who listened to it and heeded it and came. And they had a huge festival, and everyone sat outside the temple and listened to the priest and took part in the sacrifices and brought their animals and they were killed by the priests and eaten by the people and when they were done uh they they actually and the the feast of unleavened bread is supposed to last for seven days when they were done they decided to do it for a second seven days and they happily did it it says now we're in we've left second kings they're in this particular account there are more details given in chronicles but they're both this account is covered in both books. Um, we're in Second Chronicles chapter 30, verse 21. It says, The children of Israel that were present at Jerusalem kept the feast of unleavened bread seven days with great gladness. And then later on, uh, it talks about how they want to do it a second time. Verse 23, The whole assembly took counsel to keep other seven days, and they kept other seven days with gladness. So they were grateful to reinstitute the worship of the Lord. Here's an interesting verse. It says, for, uh, in, back in verse 17 and 18, There were many in the congregation that were not sanctified. Therefore the Levites had the charge of killing of the Passovers for everyone that was not clean, to sanctify them unto the Lord. For a multitude of the people, even many of Ephraim and Manasseh, Issachar and Zebulun, had not cleansed themselves. So this is the, this is the ritual purity that we were talking about. And you're supposed to be ritually pure to come uh, at Passover time to come to the temple and partake of this sac- sacrifice and these ordinances. Yet they had not cleansed themselves, yet did they eat of the Passover otherwise than it was written. But Hezekiah prayed for them, saying, The good Lord pardon every one that prepareth his heart to seek God, the Lord God of his fathers, though he be not cleansed according to the purification of the sanctuary. And the Lord hearkened to Hezekiah and healed the people. Now, this is fascinating. Here is again, yet again, a demonstration of just how patient Jehovah is. These people have not properly, they're all repenting, and yet it was very specifically prescribed how they were to repent and how they were to come and worship during these times. And they hadn't done it perfectly. And Hezekiah prayed and said, the good Lord pardon everyone that comes that has this in his heart. And the Lord hearkened. It says here, Yahweh hearkened to Hezekiah and healed the people. And they didn't heal them of any physical ailments. He healed them spiritually. Isn't that fascinating? 
that they were all gathered around the temple imperfectly. And the Hezekiah, the king slash prophet, prayed and said, pardon them, even though they're not doing it properly, who has it in his, that prepareth his heart to seek God. And the Lord healed them. I just think that's such a beautiful, just one sentence, it's such a beautiful verse. Second Chronicles 30, verse 20. So what he learns is that God is long suffering. This is this is continuing with the purposes of the um, the writer of the book of Kings. Now we're in the book of Chronicles. Now the the difference between Kings and Chronicles is the book of Kings was written after sometime during the Babylonian captivity to show that this Babylonian captivity was absolutely necessary, and then to point the way to some to a some future time when the when the messianic king from David's line would would come to Israel and rescue them. This is what they were all looking forward to. Now, interestingly enough, the book of Chronicles has a similar goal, except that the time frame is after they've returned to Israel. And in some Bibles, in the Jewish Bible, in the Bible that Christ would have grown up with, the book of Chronicles is the last book of the Old Testament, or the, the last book of what they would have known as the Scriptures. And the the lessons drawn in the book of chronicles are also drawn from what happens after they return from captivity but they're still looking forward to this messianic king and um, i want to take a few minutes here and talk about exactly what the purpose of the old testament was because here are two we have the example of two books the book of kings what we know is four books but they're they're originally two books the book of kings and chronicles had as their purpose this prophecy of what's going to happen when Israel fulfills its destiny. Where did Israel get its destiny? Well, if you recall, when, first of all, um, we can go back all the way to the very beginning of the book of Genesis and to the creation to, to understand Jewish philosophy, but I won't spend much time on that. Just let it be known that the Jews believe today, they believe that the at creation, God made his first attempt to create a holy people. And they believe that that failed because Adam and Eve fell. And then very quickly, all of their offspring turned to wickedness. And then the Lord had to wipe everyone out, start over. He tried it again with Noah. And he did, tried this time with a full family. And that failed. And then, um, instead of trying with to have the entire world, to have the whole population of the world be righteous, um, God made his third attempt. And, and in this attempt, he called a man named Abraham, picked him out of, ran, out of randomness. We don't, we don't know why. There's, it's just all of a sudden, the story is about the entire world, and then we focus in on this one man, Abraham, and then his family. And he was chosen because he was going to teach the world how to worship God. So instead of God having everybody know how to worship him, he, he was going to have one representative that would then teach everyone else. And this was Abraham and the family of Abraham, and this is what became the nation of Israel. This is what they see as their destiny. So this is the, desti- this is the destiny pointed to by the Old Testament. And their destiny quickly leads them into captivity in Egypt, but they remain one. They remain coherent as a people. And when they come out, they, they end up all together in Sinai, and that is when God tells them, you are to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. If you remember that quote from when we uh, studied the book of Exodus. So this is the calling of the ancient people of Israel. It is to represent God to the world. Now, there are priests in Israel. What do the priests do? They represent God to the people of Israel. This is what God had in mind for the entire nation of Israel. It was not that they would have priests, but was that they would all be priests and priestesses to the nations, that God would be able to count on the entire nation of Israel to demonstrate what it was like to worship God and to receive the blessings of that worship to the rest of the world. And then the rest of the world would be converted to his worship. So this is why God, in the, in the eyes of Israelites, this is why God chose them and taught them. And this is why Yahweh 
even did anything with Israel and called prophets. That's the whole point of it, is that Israel has this destiny to fulfill, to demonstrate to everyone, and Jews still see it this way, to demonstrate to everyone what it is like to worship God so that people will be converted by watching their example. Now, that failed again, but this time God isn't going to give up. So God gave up twice. The, the third time is the charm, and he's going to keep trying with the nation of Israel. And, that, and so the, the point of the Hebrew Scriptures, what we know as the Old Testament, is to show that God is never giving up. This is what God is trying to do, is he's trying to convert the entire world into worshiping him and serving him faithfully. And, it's, and meanwhile, they're prophesying at some point this will really happen. There will be this Davidic king, this messianic figure, the Messiah, who's going to come along, rescue them from their external troubles, and then raise them to a higher level of worship. Well, obviously, if you've um, you know, studied Christ at all, you know that they, they missed what kind of... Um, they missed the glory that Christ would not have. They thought he would come in glory his first time around. And so let's, let's look at actually what they missed. And uh, for this, you'll need to turn to Luke chapter 24. And I, and I recommend actually looking at these verses if you can, because it's fascinating. The first story we have, and, you, and you'll remember both of these stories, but it's, it's after Christ's resurrection and two of his disciples are walking along on the road to a place called Emmaus, which is about six or seven miles from Jerusalem. So Christ appears to them in disguise or unrecognizable somehow, and he's, he's asking them what's going on. And they say, well, Christ has been dead. This is the third day. We thought it was he. So this is what they mean. Here, the, here we are, uh, Luke 24, verse 21. But we trusted that it had been he which should have redeemed Israel. And beside all this, today is the third day. So then uh, in verse 25, Christ finally responds. He says, O fools and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And Christ doesn't mean himself necessarily. What Christ means is the word Messiah, which is the anointed. He's talking about the Davidic king that they were talking about. So they're saying, we thought it was he that would be this Davidic Messiah. And he said, should not the Messiah have suffered these things? The, the next verse, Luke 24, verse 27, beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in, this, in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. This is to me such a fascinating passage because here is Christ. He, and we know he will establish the pattern later of showing his wounds and his hands and his side and his feet and saying, here's my body, behold, thy, I am the risen Lord. What more powerful witness could there be? And yet he doesn't start out that way. Instead, he says, and, and uh, in case you've forgotten what we talked about, about what the nature of the Hebrew scriptures were, there are three parts. There's the Torah, which means law, well, which is usually trans, translated as the word law, but it actually means teaching. And that's, those are the f- first five books of Moses. Then there are the prophets, the Nevi'im, and then there are the writings, the Ketuvim. So T-N-K, Torah, Nevi'im, Ketuvim. It's often abbreviated as Tanakh. So here is Christ. He's saying, beginning at Moses and all the prophets. So he uses the, the most authoritative, uh, and that's in order of descending authoritativeness, is Moses, then the prophets, then the writings. And so he uses the most authoritative of the scriptures to show that everything was pointing to himself. That's the first part. So instead of, instead of showing the most powerful testimony he has, which is a physical witness that he's risen, he tells them what's in the scriptures, and what we know as the Old Testament. It was enough for Christ to show the Old Testament. It was a more powerful witness of Christ than his actual body. This is why I'm working so hard making this podcast is because the Old Testament does prophesy, does testify. It is a testament of Christ. Christ himself is a witness of it here in Luke 24. Later on in this same chapter, verses 44 through 48, this is when he appears. Now his disciples have heard about this. These guys in Emmaus, they run back. Uh, Later on, Christ reveals himself to them. 
And they run back, they tell the apostles, and the apostles gather together, and they're in a room, and all of a sudden Christ appears to them. And, and they are amazed. And he says, you know, calm down. Look, it's me. It really is. I'm going to eat something. You can see my wounds. And so he, he does start the way we think he might want to, which is showing that it's him. But then he says, and this is just fascinating, number four, verse 44 of Luke 24. He said unto them, These are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled, which were written in the law of Moses. So there's the Torah. And in the prophets, there's the Nevi'im. And in the Psalms. Now the Psalms in Jesus' scriptures would have been the first book of the writings. So he hits all three. The, ten, the Torah, the Nevi'im, and the Ketuvim. You see, he's talking about all three parts of the, what we know as the Old Testament. And he's saying they all testify of him. And they all point towards him. So the, the exploits or the, the episodes in the story of Israel, this is all one grand metaphor. We know that Christ taught in parables. And here's the biggest parable of all. He's saying the earlier, you, you may remember that Christ taught his disciples earlier, that I, I teach in parables that seeing they see not and hearing they hear not. In other words, this is a message intended for those who are initiated into what I have to say so that I don't condemn anyone who's not ready. And yet, for those who are ready, they receive something that's easier to remember and it's a more powerful lesson because it's a parable. And here was the most powerful parable of all. The, entire, the entirety of the scriptures that they knew was pointing to him and they never saw it. And here he is saying, here's the explanation of this parable. I'm showing you that the entire Old Testament points to me. And the way that it does is by treating the, the people of Israel as a person. Right? A person being led to Christ. The, the history of Israel is the history of a person going from a normal man, a normal woman, through the process of being refined by God and being raised up to be like him one day, and being saved by Christ. This is why we say that all things, the, the law of Moses pointed toward Christ. This is the reason. Obviously, there are other reasons. There are, there's there are levels upon levels of this symbolism, but at its highest level, this is what it is, is this, this story points toward the need for a Davidic Messiah, Messianic King. Every Jew would have understood this. In fact, it's what the word gospel means. When, well, that's, that's a subject for another lesson. We'll, we'll talk about that when we talk about Isaiah. But, um, so here's Christ testifying of this shortly after his resurrection to all the apostles. He's saying that the, the story of the Old Testament, it has nothing else, it has no other more important mission than to testify of me. And, and, um, and we can be assured from these verses, among others, that Christ very much saw, even the, even the Old Testament missing the plain and precious things that the Book of Mormon talks about, even the Old Testament that we have today, which would have been pretty similar to what Christ had, um, was the most powerful testimony of Christ that he could give, more powerful than his body, than his wounds in his hands. Isn't that fascinating? So what happened to Hezekiah? Well, uh, he, he told the people, because they had all been, they'd all undergone this cleansing process and they had all returned to the temple, some of them. You know, some had stayed in their cities and mocked him. And then many of those cities were destroyed by Sennacherib. But... When Sennacherib, and then Sennacherib sends this mocking letter. Who, who is Yahweh? What, what do I care about your God, Yahweh? He's just like every other God that I put my foot on and smashed him into the dirt. And Hezekiah is scared, and he sends a letter. He sends messengers to Isaiah. And he says, what are we going to do? I, I've, I've given this outward show of confidence, but I'm actually really scared because he is a scary, scary guy. And Isaiah says, he hasn't just mocked you, he's mocked, or, you know, thus saith the Lord, he hasn't just mocked you, he's mocked me, and therefore I will fight your battles. And not only that, but he's not even going to bring his people here, he's not going to encamp against you, he's not going to raise shields against you, he's not going to fire a single arrow. This is quite a powerful promise. And then the army of 
Sennacherib marches on Jerusalem, and there they arrive. And it seems almost impossible that this prophecy would be fulfilled. And they have this confrontation at the walls of Jerusalem where the the messenger of the emperor is there shouting into the city. And the people in the city are saying, hey, let's keep this all in Assyrian because, you know, this is between you and us. And and he says, no, I haven't come to talk to you. I've come to tell everyone else what they're what they've got in store for him. And so he, he says it in Hebrew. He says all these threats and breathes out all these blasphemies against Yahweh. And then the story goes that the next morning they woke up dead. It was, it was very, it's a very interesting passage because they woke up in the morning and behold, they were all dead corpses. It's, it's almost like um, somebody was, they, they let a stand-up comic write that particular part of the, part of the story because obviously the corpses didn't wake up but 185,000 of the Assyrian army were dead and at the same time the emperor who's at Lachish gets uh, word of a rumor that some of his other enemies are stirring against him and he's got to go back so he sends a letter and he says oh don't think that you've escaped me you know you think oh you really can believe in your god but you can I'll be back so he's still breathing out these threatenings, and obviously he's really, really hurt by losing so many soldiers. He doesn't understand why. And we, to this day, we don't know why. But disease, they were fighting. If it's keeping uh, in, in pattern with what the Lord usually does in these situations, they were fighting among themselves. In any case, he gets back to Nineveh, his capital, and he's murdered by two of his sons. And he never comes back. So this is what happens to the Assyrians. And... Because of the righteousness of Hezekiah, his willingness to bring the people to the temple, worship there with them, cleanse them, in spite of their imperfections, in spite of the fact they didn't even repent right, God fought their battles and they were protected. Now, Hezekiah ruled for 25, 20 some odd years, and maybe it's 27. And then his, uh, oh, and the, it speaks about him. At one point, Isaiah arrives and said, your time is appointed to die. And Hezekiah turns his face to the wall and prays to God and says, Haven't I been perfect before you, Lord? Haven't I done everything you've required me to do? Haven't I helped my people repent as well? And God says, Yes, I've, I've heard your prayer. You And Isaiah comes to Hezekiah and says, uh, Because you have been perfect before me, then I grant you 15 more years of life. So unfortunately, he knows <laughs> the time of his death. He knows exactly how much more time he has. Maybe I should say, fortunately, it's hard to say what it's hard to, if you think about would you want to know the time of your own death? Maybe you would, maybe you would, but he does. And so then he lives 15 more years and dies and he makes some crucial mistakes. Uh, one of which is his pride gets to him where he, they're, they're so prosperous during his time that he wants to show off his riches and he shows it. He makes the mistake of showing off his riches to some Babylonian ambassadors, which ends up biting him really hard later, but bites the Israelite people later because their their wealth becomes well known to the Babylonians, and the Babylonians are the ones who attack them. But that's after Hezekiah's time. So then Hezekiah has, has a son who's named Manasseh, and he becomes king, and he is the wickedest king ever seen. Not only does he institute the worship of every idolatrous god, but he makes this official. He sacrifices his own children by burning them to Moloch. And he does and he not only does he do all these things, he does it in the temple itself. He does he turns the temple into an, a place of idolatrous worship. He puts idols in the temple and desecrates that place. And because of his great wickedness, God decrees an unalterable decree. You will the nation of Judah now has to be destroyed. It you you will be carried away. You have gone too far. Now the son of Manasseh is a man named Josiah. And I have an interesting story about Josiah and people um well, first of all, let's talk about the, the idea behind Josiah, which is that um, he is he becomes king, and, and one day some uh, he's king for a while. I mean, he's righteous at the, at the beginning, but doesn't really know 
what kind of man he should be. His father Manasseh was king for over 55 years. So the, the worship of Yahweh is all but forgotten at this point, and, generate, and a generation or two have gone by since anybody has heard of Hezekiah. And so, and I don't mean that literally, they've heard of him, but they, they don't care what kind of man Hezekiah was. And all of a sudden, some of Josiah's servants discover in the temple a book of the scriptures. Now, the, the kings had their own commandments. If you remember in the, in the 17th chapter of Deuteronomy, there is a whole set of commandments there that are just for kings to follow. You shall not multiply gold unto yourselves. You shall not, we, we discussed this when we talked about Solomon. And he hears not only the commandments for the king, but for the people. And he says, and he rends, it says here, and he rent his clothes. He's so distraught that he rips his clothes in half. And he says, we have to take action. And to me, this just 100% reminded me of the, of chapter 32 of Alma. Because in, in Alma chapter 32, he's teaching rich people and they won't listen. And then he turns around, he teaches the poor people and they do listen. And he says, because you've been compelled to be humble, blessed are ye. But even more blessed is someone who humbles himself because of the word. Now, it's so rare in the scriptures to find this actually happening. I, I remember the last time I read that, I thought, when does this really happen that someone hears the word and humbles themselves? They just don't do it. And as we'll, as we'll discuss when we talk about Jonah, um, Nineveh, actually the, the capital of the Assyrians, is one of the places where they humble themselves because of the word. Here's another example. King Josiah, he, he has the scriptures read to him, and he weeps, and he rends his clothes, and he says, we all have to repent. And he sends the word, he has this word copied down, and he sends it everywhere, and he says, everyone has to do this. Now, it's, it says uh, in the book of Kings, in the book of Second Kings, it says that he did more than anyone before him. So even Hezekiah, during the time of Hezekiah, they had burned down the groves, the, the worship places of Baal and Ashtaroth and Moloch. They'd, they'd cleaned out all the idolatry, but they hadn't, apparently, they hadn't cleaned it all out because Josiah really did do away with every bit of idolatry, cut down every grove, and he cleansed the temple again and got rid of every idol and had it thrown into the brook Kidron, which is actually pretty close to the temple. But it was considered to be a place of refuse. And in fact, the name of it is um, where we get the scriptural term for hell, because it was a place of garbage and of destroying and where things were burned. And that's actually where where we get, that's is why jo- Jesus chose to use, uh, and other prophets chose to use a lake of fire and brimstone, because... Um, it's where things that did not live up, that, that had to be cast out, it's where they're thrown away. Uh, it wasn't actually a place of torment. It was just a place where things are, that wasted things go, right? This is the idea of hell. Anyway, that this is where the Josiah gets rid of all these idols. Now, because of Josiah's righteousness, the prophets told him that he wouldn't have to see the destruction of Judah while he was alive. Nevertheless, it didn't reverse what God had already prophesied would happen to them because of the wickedness that they'd had under Manasseh. And one of, one of my questions is, why, why was it too late? Why God, If God is so forgiving, then why wouldn't he forgive them one more time? This sounds like the most righteous king they'd ever had. And the answer is we don't, we don't know. We don't have enough context to say, you know, were the people truly converted or did they really repent or was it just Josiah by force of will putting a band-aid on a problem that was going to come as soon as he was gone? In any case, Josiah dies in battle. The Egyptians are marching up through through Judah in order to give battle to the Syrians to the north and um, he goes to stop them and is killed in battle. And as soon as he's gone, then the, then the bad times really come to Israel. But the point of this lesson is to show that the, the blessings of God attended Israel as they gave 
attention to the holiness of the temple. And here's another interesting thing. We, we often think, oh, God, God's presence dwells in the temple. You know, if anyone touches the Ark of the Covenant, they're struck down. Obviously, God won't let anything bad happen to the temple. Not true. The temple was destroyed several times, and it was led, it was let, it was neglected several times. It was let fall into ruin more than once in the scriptures. So God at times would manifest himself or would interfere or intervene supernaturally when his when his people were faithful. But when they when the temple had suffered neglect, then God was happy. Well, he was not happy, he was content to let the consequences follow, which is that often the, the temple might be destroyed or might be desecrated by foreign invaders. And when they gave attention to it and when they kept it holy, then he would miraculously preserve it. And to me, there is there can be no greater symbolism then uh, is summoned by the verse, know ye not that ye are the temple of God, right? This is what this is a New Testament idea that the temple represents us. So God miraculously preserves it when the people value it properly. Do we, and you know, we've heard our body is a temple, but it's not just our body, it's our body and our spirit. When we can pre- preserve that and value it like a temple, then God will miraculously aid us. He will magnify, in other words, our agency. Now, this is true of the physical temple as well. When we value it, when we make it holy, when we consecrate it and then take advantage of it and attend it, but not only attend it, but magnify it, then God magnifies our efforts and protects it and protects us. And the same thing is true of us in our lives. When we view ourselves as something that's holy, as we we discussed several lessons ago, as the anointed of the Lord, then God will magnify our efforts many-fold. I want to end with one story, and this is, uh, I hope this young man never, never hears my podcast, but he's a young man in my ward. And the... This story, every time I think about King Josiah, I think about this young man. He was, I was a, years ago, I was a scoutmaster. And this young man was our, uh, our deacon's quorum president. And we had a lesson about Joseph Smith reading in the first, in James chapter one, verse five. And somehow he just kept reading in, in the book of James. And he read to the part where it said, true religion and unspotted before God is this, to visit the widow and the orphan in their affliction. And he said to his dad, who was one of our advisors, he didn't say this in front of me, but um, I found out later this is what happened. He read this in the scriptures, and he said to his dad, Dad, why don't we do this? And his dad said, well, do you want to? And he said, yeah. And so as the deacon's president, he encouraged and asked and called several deacons to come with him, and it ended up being the entire quorum. And they made a visit to one of the widows in the ward. And she was so touched and she was uh, so affected by that visit that they did it again the next week. And then they ran out of widows. And so they started visiting other people, anyone who was old. And then they ran out of old people and they started visiting families. And pretty soon they were just, they just had this tradition to go on visits every week after church, every Sunday, whether, whether it was winter or summer no matter what was going on. Now, this young man's now 16. This was four years ago, um, or three years ago, or, or sometime. And the the deacons are still doing this. It's just fascinating to me. When I heard this, I heard, when I heard this story that he read the scripture and he asked about it, why aren't we doing this? And then he instituted something that changed it. I thought, that reminds me of King Josiah in the book of Second Kings. He read the scripture, and he humbled himself because of the word, and then he made a change. And Alma said in Alma chapter 32, how blessed are you? You're way more blessed if you can read the word. This is what we're doing, by the way. You and I are reading the word. 
We're studying the word. If we can do this and humble ourselves and we can find something in these verses that teach us anything about what it is to be a better disciple of Christ, what it is to be a better human being, if we find something and we do it, how blessed are we? This is, this is a way to become far more blessed than having to be compelled to be humble. And there's the answer as to why Josiah couldn't change God's mind is because God now was forced to compel the Israelites to be humble rather than to allow them to humble themselves. Judah was the, or Josiah was the only person capable of doing that in the entire nation. Everyone else needed to be compelled. So as soon as Josiah was dead, then the time of the nation of Israel had come, or the nation of Judah had come, the kingdom of Judah. They were on a downhill slope. However, as a metaphor, this still calls out to us. We are the people of Israel. And every time you read what they were doing, don't think, oh, they're so stupid. Well, I'm above them. Look at your own life and see. Hezekiah led everyone to repent in sackcloth and ashes. And then one generation later, they forgot. And then one generation later, they came back. This shows us, number one, that even when we repent imperfectly, God allows us to come back. Sometimes we have terrible consequences as a result of our actions. Sometimes we're able to humble ourselves because of the word alone. But in all cases, God is always there with us. Whether we have to go into captivity for a time, whether we have to look forward to a day when the the greater blessings of God will come, we know that God's long-suffering is never-ending. His prophecies are with his people. And the blessings are promised to those who will hear his word, study his word, find the temple, treat themselves as a temple, and allow God to magnify his efforts through our agency. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. This has been Gospel Doctrine, a nonprofit podcast hosted and produced by Mark Holt with bumper music by Kendra Lowe. Gospel Doctrine is not affiliated with nor endorsed by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints.